Welcome to another Redemption Institute Theology on the Ground. This evening, yeah, this evening we'll be talking about race, ethnicity, and the gospel with my friend Derek Kelsey. Why talk about something so loaded? <laughs> well, I think love compels us, church. Mark Dever says, quote, the local church should reflect the truth about God. If it is divided, it teaches everyone that Christ is divided. If love does not mark your church, then it may attract spiritual hobbyists who like to play at religion, but not people of real Christian love who will inconvenience themselves for others. So yes, ultimately, love does compel us to jump into hard conversations. And quite frankly, we, we need to talk about racial matters, because if you know anything about um, your American evangelical history, um, the, the, the white church has a horrific track record when it comes to racial relations. Um, or in the words of Jamar Tisby, there would be no black church without racism in the white church. But love also compels us as Christians to, to come to these conversations with our allegiance set on the lamb, not the elephant or the donkey. When our allegiance is to him, the, the lamb of God, King Jesus, and not a political party, we can think and talk Christianly even disagree over some stuff and yet do it all to the glory of Christ and for the edification and the unity of his multi-ethnic and multicultural bride. This, this conversation is also important to us because it's near and dear to the heart of God. Let me read a passage from Revelation 7. Here's what we get to look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. Here, here's what Jesus' work on the cross accomplished. Chapter 7, verse 9, it says, the Apostle John speaking, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb so yes let's have these and other hard conversations. Like, like James Baldwin said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed unless it is faced. So before we face the topic of race, ethnicity, and the gospel, let me introduce our guest this evening. We have the um, pastor, I've called you Bishop, Reverend Derek Kelsey. Um, he, he's a, a native of Birmingham, Alabama, and a vocal supporter of the football team of his alma mater, the University of Alabama. Roll Tide. I, 
can't believe I just said Roll Tide. <laughs> it's definitely not my favorite Crimson team out there. <laughs> but luckily, when it's not football season, we can come together and talk about the Lakers. Um, but, but, but there's not too much to talk about in the fall unless I want to hear about how awesome Alabama is. Although I will say, is Georgia the new Alabama? <laughs> but... <laughs> but it was at the University of Alabama where he earned a degree in computer engineering. He worked for several years as an IT, IT consultant before he moved to Texas to attend DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, after completing master's in theology, and at DTS, that, that, that's a THM, and that's like, that's like 300 units, right? Oh my gosh, ridiculous. <laughs> after he finished up at, at, at Dallas, um, he moved with his wife, Zanetta, and two sons, Drew and Zach, out to Denver, where they planted um, what was the Embassy Church with Brandon Washington. After celebrating 10 years of the embassy, the church mo- merged with the Denver Christian Bible Church in January this year to form Embassy Christian Christian Bible Church, where he serves as executive pastor. Um, Derek is a, a dear friend of mine, a mentor. Um, one of the most impactful, influential seasons of my life was when I sat under you and Brandon as a resident at the embassy. So, bro, I'm so glad you're here, man. Good deal. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Heck yeah, man. So so we're going to jump right into this conversation. Um, we'll take a break in about an hour or so, and then we'll come back for some question and answer time. But it's going to look a little bit different. If you have questions, I want you to shoot me a text, and I'll kind of work through all of them, and then I'll ask after that. So if you don't already have my phone number, let me, let me give you my phone number. So you can pull out your phones if you don't have it, but it's it's five six two five six two nine six five three seven one six. You don't have to wait until question time to shoot me a text at any time as he's talking about anything. Um, huh? Yep, I hit record, so we're good. Um, so, Derek, you have an amazing testimony um, growing up in, in Birmingham. Alabama as a black man, right? Uh, could you share your experience, even starting with your parents, and just take us from growing up to DTS to out here in Denver? All right. Um, well, before I do that, is this thing on here? Okay, cool. I just, I see it. I'm like, all right. Okay, cool. All right. All right. Luckily, you give them a good side. Okay. Um, but before I start that, let me just say this. First of all, thank you for having me. Um, to me, this is a family conversation, so you can lower your guard a little bit. Um, if it weren't a family conversation, I wouldn't be here. Um, but because of that, um, I, I trust you all, and I ask that you trust me as we explore this conversation, have this um, this dialogue. This is not my first rodeo. I enjoy having these conversations and sharing and whatnot. Um, but I truly believe that we are rooted together as family. And that allows us to have a common place to start from, to have these conversations about history, about culture, about uh, society. But um, my background and my, my basis is rooted in the gospel. And so that's where I'm coming from. 
um, that's where I am believing you're coming from. Uh, thus, I'm here. So just wanted to put that out there. All right. So a little bit about my, about my background. So uh, like Rick said, I grew up in Birmingham and my parents grew up in Birmingham as well. And so I was born in 1976, which was just a decade after the city integrated. So that means my mom and my dad grew up in a in a city where they lived in a segregated neighborhood and did not have lots of interactions with white people because of the laws and the rules. Uh-oh. See, the spirit already moving. <laughs> so this is going to be a private conversation, okay? All right. Um, but yeah, so they, so they grew up in, in a city where uh, just from the laws of not being able to go and shop in certain places, not being able to go in certain restaurants, um, not being able to go in certain movie theaters, things of that nature, they lived a life that was very much insulated to uh, where black folks congregated, went to church, went to school, things of that nature. Um, in particular, um, in the 60s, the early 60s, my mom was in high school at this point. And that was around the time when the civil rights movement was really um, coming up to its zenith. And um, in 1963, as a part of the civil rights movement, um, as a strategy, um, the movement came to Birmingham in order to have some public demonstrations. And as they came to Birmingham, they came to Birmingham for the main reason was the police commissioner in Birmingham, a guy named Bull Connor, was known to be very much easily agitated by black people protesting. So the idea was that they would come to Birmingham and they would stage protest and assuming that Bull Connor would show us behind. And in that time, you know, you didn't have social media, but you had the New York Times, you had news media and whatnot. And if he did do what they expected him to do, that would allow them to use these public Im images to blast out to the nation about, hey, this is what's going on here in the South to begin to try to get some motivation for some civil rights legislation to, legislation to get passed. Um, particularly when they got to Birmingham, they wanted to use a strategy of instead of using adults to participate in the demonstrations, they wanted kids to participate for two reasons. One, um, adults had so much to lose. If you marched and you were arrested, now you were economically impacted because you might lose your job, things of that nature. The second thing is that, again, if Bull Connor showed us behind, doing things against kids, that would create even more of a media outrage and that type of thing. So um, my mom was in high school at this point. She was in um, ninth grade. I think she was about 14 years old. And uh, she was recruited to come to some of these meetings that they were having in churches to help plan for these demonstrations. And uh, she originally came because she heard that there were some cute boys there. <laughs> So, again, everybody who's a freedom fighter ain't necessarily always down for the cause, you know. <laughs> so she goes to uh, these – they would have these meetings in churches because, again, think about you're living in a segregated society. These black churches, there were not people, white folks or otherwise, who were coming into these spaces. So they could have these conversations and plan these things, you know, out in the open because there were not shared spaces. So um, she, would, she went to one of these church meetings, and they – you know, had a little service, and then they uh, took the kids over and had uh, their own kind of special youth time, and they began to talk to them about some of the um, discrepancies and the um, 
the inadequacies in terms of what their education situation looked like vis-a-vis other white students. So uh, they talked to my mom about, um, have you noticed that your the uniforms that your football team gets that your helmets are, when you first get them, they're painted green and your school colors are blue. Well, why? It's because you're getting the hand-me-downs from this white school. Or they asked, like, how many typewriters do you have at the school? My mom said one because she was kind of the teacher's pet, and so she was the one who was able to get to the typewriter in the typing class all the time. And it was like, well, do you know the students at these white schools have classrooms full of typewriters? And she was like, no, I had no idea that any of these things were going on. And so as it went, as it went down, she was became aware because, again, she's 14, going to school, has never really had types of interactions with white folks outside of just the general commerce maybe when they're downtown, but had no idea that the life that she was living was so much different or the opportunities that she had were so much different than um, white kids who were in a similar grade but were going to white schools in Birmingham. So that kind of got her motivated to participate in the march. And so they had a march, they called it D-Day. It was in May of 1963. And um, all the kids skipped school went downtown, met at this church, and filed into the street and started demonstrating. And sure enough, the police were there, and they started arresting all of these kids. And there were like several days of these protests. And after day two, um, of course, again, Bull Connor, the police commissioner, and they had the fire department, they uh, started turning water hoses on the kids. They had German shepherds out there nipping at the kids and stuff. And all this stuff got blasted out to the national news, and it was a lot of the impetus for uh, the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65. So my mom, 14 years old, got arrested. Her mom had told her, don't you go out there and get arrested. Sure enough, she did. My uncle um, went to see about my mom, and because he was out there, he got arrested. <laughs> And so again, everybody who's freedom fighter ain't down for the cops. But but she was in jail for uh, a couple of days. And there's a picture of her that was in Life magazine of her sitting in this area. Because they just couldn't take the kids to the regular jail. So they took them to like a like a fair park, uh, like maybe a place even like this, just somewhere just to house all the kids and whatnot. Um, So then my mom, that's, that's her in high school. After that, then, um, they started integrating schools, not just high schools, but, like, colleges. So, like, for example, when my mom was in high school, when she started high school, she could not have gone to the University of Alabama. So, um, but by the time she graduated from high school and they started integrating uh, the schools, my mom uh, went to college there in Birmingham, and she was a teacher. And they started... Uh, they integrated um, the Birmingham City Schools in the, the early 70s, and they had a program for having black teachers go into these white schools. And my mom was a part of this first cohort that went into these white schools to teach. And it's just wild for me to think about this because she was teaching like seventh grade science. And here she is going into a classroom in an environment that she was very unfamiliar with because, again, her life, she she went to church with black folks. She went to a black college. She went to a black high school. And now this is one of her first opportunities to be experienced this, as well as she's going into an environment that has never had a black person in any sort of uh, role of authority. So here she is you know, teaching these kids, but it wasn't just teaching the kids, but because it was the first time there were a whole lot of skeptical parents. And so you had parents who would come sit in her classroom to see what this black lady was going to be teaching her kids. Now, I know if y'all are anything like me, y'all went through science and passed all of that in high school, but you forgot all of that. 
So them parents were not in there because they actually understood the periodic table. <laughs> they were there, you know, just from some of these sociological ideas about, well, what's going on here? Does she know what she's doing? Is she going to be able to do that? And asking questions and things of that nature. But, you know, my mom's a strong lady. She was able to handle herself, and she did all of that. So... It was just kind of fascinating just seeing how, how her life and her experiences kind of even led up to mine. So, again, I'm born in the, the 70s. I started school uh, in 1980s in Birmingham, and I went to a Catholic school. It was a private school. And when I started in um, kindergarten, the Catholic school that I went to was 80% white, about 20% black. By the time that I graduated from that Catholic school in eighth grade, it had flipped to 80% black and about 20% white, and that was reflective of what happened when integration happened in the city. So as black people had to, were able to move out of these red line neighborhoods where they could only live during Jim Crow segregation and started moving out in the city, then as they moved into these neighborhoods, white folks left those neighborhoods and started moving to the suburbs. And therefore, uh, we saw a population of the school that I went to. It was a uh, Irish Catholic schools, the, the diocese of the, um, of the city. And um, yeah, the, so the, the school changed over there. So I went, to a, uh, I went to an all-black high school, and then I went to the University of Alabama. So again, now, that's kind of an interesting thing, too, just being in that situation. And that experience was interesting, and I'm just telling you a lot of my life story, but it'll have relevance and meaning as we go through this. Um, that was interesting because I'm at a, a, like a significantly predominantly white school, but culturally, my experience was very black because socially, the campus was still segregated. The Alabama that exists now, the whole roll tide, that whole thing, it wasn't all like that when I was going to the school. So um, when you go to class, you know, I might be one of just a few black kids there, and especially once I got into engineering, um, I was definitely very much a minority. But when it came time for, for any kind of social events or parties or anything like that, the black folks hung together. Now, again, this is in the 90s before hip-hop had become like the, the predominant youth movement. So, you know, the stuff we was listening to wasn't what the white folks was listening to. And so, you know, it was time to party. Everybody went their own separate ways. It's not like that now because everybody listens to the same music. And so I think it's a lot more of an integrated situation. So, so that was interesting. Um, but to be at a place as I graduated and really came to understand that I was at a place that just a generation ago, my mom couldn't come. Um, went out and worked for a while. And uh, growing up, I had not heard and never knew that a thing called Dallas Seminary existed, didn't know Denver Seminary, didn't really understand anything about white evangelical Christianity at all. Because um, I grew up in the same church that my mom and dad grew up, which was in the neighborhood that they grew up in. Um, so it was a black Baptist church, and that's just kind of what we did. Um, then um, once I got to Atlanta and heard about a friend of mine was talking about going to Dallas Seminary, I was like, oh, tell me about what's going on there. And uh, I went out to visit. I talked to the pastor of the church I was going to at that point, and he affirmed it. And I was like, okay. And he was like, yeah, this guy, Tony Evans. I was like, oh, okay. You know, I had never heard of him, but I was like, if you like him, I love him. So uh, I felt the Lord leading me to some sort of vocational ministry, so I go to DTS. And again, that was a very interesting time when I went there because uh, this was in like 2003 when I got there um, 
there were a significant number of younger black students there. So I kind of came up in an environment where there was a lot of community, but at the same time, I understood I was in a very different place. Um, but I was open to it and, and happy to uh, receive whatever the Lord had. But uh, that was my first kind of exposure to this side of the church world in America. And uh, I, I saw also a lot of good stuff. And then after a while, I saw some stuff like, eh, okay, it ain't all good over here either. <laughs> you know. Now, I had critiques of the situation that I grew up in and the context from a church perspective that I grew up in. Um, and initially, I think I was, I was enamored with some of the polish and some of the theological rigor that I found when I got to Dallas Seminary and started going to various churches. Um, we ended up going to the Village Church uh, while we were there in Dallas after going to a traditional black Baptist church. Very different worlds. Very different worlds. But, uh, but the Village was growing like gangbusters and whatnot when we first went there. And so that, that was kind of something different. But um, after kind of being exposed there, I was like, okay, yeah, sin is all over the place. You know, there, there is no perfect church. There's no perfect situation. Um, and that's, I think, well, that's one of the main things I left um, my sim time in seminary with. And um, so at this point, I'm in Dallas. I finished school. And there's a guy who I went to church with when I first got to Dallas who had moved up here to go to Denver Seminary. And um, we had stayed in contact, maintained our friendship and whatnot. And he was talking to me about wanting to plant a church here in Denver. And I was like, hey, man, that's a great idea for you. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we had many conversations about this church and, uh, you know, kind of talk shop about it because you know, I was in seminary. He's in seminary and whatnot. Um, but it was just talking shop. There was no I no, there was not an inkling in my mind that I would move up here to do this. Um, but as the Lord would have it in uh, December 2009, he's home for Christmas because he was from Dallas and he asked me and my wife to come up and help him start the church that um, that he had wanted to plan and the one that we had been talking about all those years and so um, you know it, it took a move of God to get my wife to say yes because my wife grew up in D.C. and um, you know we were thinking that once if we left Dallas we'd move somewhere back east not north and west definitely not here and so that was a that was something to say okay lord we're gonna trust you on that and um we uh <laughs> i just real real quickly uh i was working i went after school i went back and started doing some it consulting and uh i got a a project based in minneapolis and uh, it was going to pay me really good money to allow us to be able to renovate the house we were in in Dallas, put on the market, to be able to have enough money saved up to move, get set up here. So I was like, cool, let's take it. And I'll just be on a plane every year, a plane every month, every Monday, and stay up there to Thursday and come back. And I was flying back and forth. And I had an opportunity to experience a winter in Minneapolis. <laughs> And that was a culture. Again, I'm from Birmingham. I lived in Birmingham. I lived in Miami. I lived in Atlanta. I lived in Dallas at that point. I was like, this is ridiculous. People actually live up here? But that's what I thought Denver was. So halfway into that, we moved to Denver in January. And the first weekend my wife and I moved here, uh, it snowed here. But the snow melted the same day. And it was like 50 degrees the next day. And there were like people wearing shorts. I was like, oh, they playing games here in Denver. I was like, okay. And then uh, the next day, I got online, and I was looking for, I wanted some barbecue. And I got online, and I Googled for some barbecue. And there was this place called Jim and Nick's that's, um, that was like 
five minutes from the house. Jim and Nick started in Birmingham. I was like, Lord, did you do have you want me here? You sent you sent Jim and Nick's ahead of me to be able to be here. So anyway, I, I say all of that to say. Uh, oh, let me tell you about the church. So we plant the Embassy Church intentionally as being a church where we, one of the things we are prioritizing was uh, diversity with integration. Um, we did not simply want to be a church that was diverse in the pews, but then once service was over, people went back and lived their segregated lives. We wanted the church to be integrated. Uh, and we're in a neighborhood that at the time we moved in um, was about a third white, a third black, a third Hispanic. And so we're like, okay, cool, this is a great place to be. And we got that started, but uh, if you've been around Denver for the past decade, you know that uh, downtown and the areas around that just experienced hyper-gentrification. And so the neighborhood changed from being very diverse to being much less diverse. And we saw that kind of change a little bit with our church. And so we tried to open ourselves up to not just being a neighborhood church because we wanted to keep that one of those distinctives of being diverse and integrated. And so that was kind of an interesting space because we had black leadership, but our church was majority white. Um, but it was a, it was a cool situation, um, and we did that, like I said, for about ten years. And um, like right coming out of the pandemic, we had the opportunity and started conversations with a church that was a church that was ninety five percent black. That was saying, "Hey, what does it look like for us to merge?" And we used the term "marry." And so we we spent some time praying over that and talking through, "Does this make sense? Would the Lord have us to do that?" And um, we finally uh, consummated our marriage, if you will, on January the 1st of this year. And so now our church has gone from being a church that was black-led and majority white to a church that's, yeah, I don't even know what our demographics are now. But uh, it's a room that you go in and you look around, you're like, I don't know why these people are in the same room together. Except Jesus. Um, and so there's some, definitely some, some pain points because... Doing this on the daily is not easy. Um, just even having, you know, pastoring this new entity of Embassy Christian Bible Church for two months. Yeah, there, there, are, some, there are some sacred cows that are cultural and not gospel related. And so, yeah, we, we're working through all of those issues. So y'all be praying for me. Now, thanks for sharing. What a... Gosh, what a, what a story, man. You've, you've seen some things. I've seen some things. Yeah. <laughs> Heard some things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, uh, I, I wanted to talk, you know, th- this is called this Theology on the Ground. Our topic is race, ethnicity, and the gospel. Um, during my time with with you and Brandon, um, I don't know how many how many times I heard you guys talk about the truncated gospel and, and how how easy it is for us, especially in, in, in white evangelicalism, to to have a truncated gospel. Um, I think you could explain like what this means and and and, and why are these issues of, of race and ethnicity actually gospel issues? Yep. Um, I don't think the truncated gospel is merely a white evangelical issue, but um, uh, th- there's a there's a level of it's, it's kind of some of our American second grade awakening roots. But um, typically, when we think of the gospel, we're really just thinking about the doctrine of justification—that Jesus died to save me from my sins. 
and that becomes the the center point of what we think about when we think about the gospel. It is true that Jesus died to save your sins, but his death accomplished so much more than just simply saving your sins. Um, The role that that Jesus played was not simply his death, but it was his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And what God was doing through Jesus was redeeming the entire world, not just simply us from our broken fellowship with him. And so when we look at uh, Revelation, when he says, uh, you know, behold, there's a new heaven and a new earth, and I'm, I'm making all things new. Um, this is comprehensive of everything in the world. Like even the book of Romans talks about creation itself groaning for redemption. So again, it's not just about us as individuals and us needing um, that that repair and that rec- reconciliation of brokenness with the Father. It's the entire world because Genesis 3 broke everything. It messed up everything. It messed up the way. The, I was in Birmingham last week. I got on the plane in Birmingham, it was 85 degrees. I landed in Denver, it was 5 degrees. And I was like, Lord, something is wrong with this. <laughs> if you're thinking about the new heaven and the new earth where there's no suffering, no tears and all of that, I was like, okay, that's how it's supposed to be. I'm not feeling this way. <laughs> I done went from being hot and sweating <laughs> to freezing my behind <laughs> in the matter of three hours just getting on a plane. So even creation itself is, is groaning for redemption. So uh, the gospel is so much more comprehensive than simply about God, Jesus dying for our sins. Where we have gotten off, and I think in the, the, the white evangelical church lane or that stream, we've presented that so much in terms of let's preach the gospel, let's preach the gospel, let's preach the gospel, let's get people saved, let's get people saved. And that becoming the not just the main thing, but the only thing, it misses all of these ramifications of what mm. Jesus' death accomplished. And so if we're looking at um, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, the first part talks about that doctrine of justification, uh, verses 1 through 10, talks about the reconciliation that, mm. that we get through the Father, that we've been saved by grace through yeah. faith. But if you keep reading, mm. 2, 11 through 22 talks about the reconciliation that happens between Jew and Gentile, yeah. and that the blood of Jesus brings the two who are, far, who are once far off near. So again, this is the blood of Jesus, the same cross accomplished, not simply, Lord, I'm saved, I don't have to go to hell. But he also said, guess what, you about to be brothers and sisters with some people that you had no earthly idea that you were going to be related to. That's good. And so that's a, that's a direct implication of the gospel. When you're talking about the lion laying down with the lamb, when you're talking about in Revelation, you're saying every nation, every, every tribe, every tongue, they're worshiping together. That's an implication of the gospel because Jesus is present tense reigning. You know, again, we're talking about the gospel. It wasn't just that Jesus died. is that he also got up. Mm. And then he got up and he ascended into heaven. Mm. And what, is, what did he start doing? He ascended into heaven. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So the authority is given. He's reigning as king, present tense. So it's not that, oh, when we get to heaven, he's going to reign as king. And then we all going to be on the same page saying, holy, holy, holy. It's like he's already king. So we're not having to wait until we get there in order to live out this reality because it's already been accomplished. 
And so that is a direct implication of the gospel as it relates to um, having not a truncated gospel, but a full gospel understanding what all God is doing uh, through Christ in his person, his work, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. That's good, and his man. return. Yeah, that's good. And it's so easy to go from one extreme to the other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe now it's only... We don't want to focus on justification. We just want to focus on fixing things. And yep. So, man, it's, it's that, that, that balance of having a full gospel. That's so good. Um, next question here. here. It's, it's easy for people to be ahistorical when it comes to race in our country. We, we tend to be selective in our memory when it comes to our, our nation's history. Now, I imagine all of us in here are grateful to be Americans. Um, but can you speak into the danger of being ahistorical when it comes to a conversation on, on race? Yep. Um, Christians are the last people who should be ahistorical. Because our faith is a faith that's based on a historical event. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, if there's no resurrection of the dead, it's like, (laughs) our faith is pointless. That was an act that occurred in history. We are in this room because we all believe that the tomb is empty. Amen. That was a his, that 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 is a factual historical event. If that didn't happen, mm. then we are just wasting our time on Sundays. We should be watching football. Mm. We should be hiking or doing some other things and just getting some naps in or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So it is. It is. We we can't. It's it's just nonsensical for us to say we will be historical about this thing that is the foundation of our life, but we want to forget about everything else related to history. History is a part of our story. We we live in the stream of history, and so yeah, so we we can't be ahistorical. Um, the 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 challenge of of history is that sometimes there are things about history that is not pretty, and it's uncomfortable. And it's like, I don't like that it's like that. I don't want it to be like that. Things now aren't as they were. So I just want to just close that off. But that's not really helpful in fully appreciating people's story. Hmm. So even growing up in the house that I grew up in and having heard some of my mom's story, some of that didn't hit me until I got an adult to really appreciate what it was that she experienced. Yeah. Um, there were like we didn't have like long extended conversations about what was it like to grow up in a city where you couldn't drink out of a water fountain unless it had the sign colored over and um my grandmother definitely didn't talk about what things were like um when she was growing up and my my grandfather and things of that nature and it's like you deprive people of their humanity when you are telling them that, well, that happened a long time ago, or that's not how things are now, as if those things don't affect you or don't affect your perception of things, as if those things don't affect how you see the world. And so, um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's been interesting, even me growing up in the city that I grew up in, growing up in the family that I grew up in. It took me some time to fully appreciate the history that was around me Mm. to give me even greater perspective of who these people are. And so, like, uh, like my dad and people of his generation are really, really hard men. Mm. 
And growing up as a son in that type of household, I was like, man, I wish my dad was softer. You know, like, say I love you some more. Like, why are you so tough? But now that I understand what it was like growing up in a society where you had to be very careful about how you carried yourself. Like, if you looked at a white person wrong, that could be your life. And when you're under that kind of threat of physical violence... It, it it does something to you and it changes you. And so now as a son, I'm like, you know, it doesn't necessarily make it better, but I definitely understand a whole lot more like, okay, I, I get I get why there's this really hard exterior because that was just about survival mm-hmm. when that's just what the the way of life and whatnot. And so to remove history from from those experiences, I think, kind of undermines your understanding and your empathy of connecting with those folks. Wow. So helpful, man. Um, Jonathan Lehman asked a question, and it's a tougher question. Um, But I would love to hear your answer. He he says, when when do we become morally culpable, um, especially as pastors, for an ignorance of our history? Yeah, um, I think it comes down to, do you fully appreciate what our mission is as the church? Mm. If the mission of the church is simply to get people saved, then you're not morally culpable if you're just pursuing, like, we're just trying to win souls. But if you have a, a, a more full understanding of what the mission of what we're called to do, it's like we're called to move into areas of brokenness to bring the wholeness that only Jesus can bring. Mm. And if that is something that we've been commissioned to do, then if we're not on mission, then absolutely we're yeah. culpable. Um, but that's where the having that foundation of understanding of, well, well what are we supposed to be doing? Mm. Am I to be concerned about your life or am I only to be concerned about where I think your spiritual state is. Mm. But I think that's a, again, that's a flawed thing where you're trying to split a person in two. Like, I'm just concerned with the immaterial part of you. So I just want to get you saved. Your life, Mm. your marriage, your kids, your school, your relationships, how you interact in society. I ain't worried about that. All I want to do is just make sure that you pass the don't go to hell test. Mm. And so... I think as pastors, in if we're the ones who are supposed to be edifying and building and leading people who are coming and say, okay, hey, I'm on board with this Jesus thing. What am I supposed to do? And if we're telling them, no, don't, don't you worry about that other stuff. All you focus on is just this. Then I think we absolutely are, are morally culpable. Amen. Amen. Um, structural or systemic racism. We've all heard that term before. Um, what does it mean? Um, and, and in 2023, is this something that still affect, affects the black, uh, the the black community? Yeah, I say it affects the entire community. Um, and I, I think we this is this is one of the challenges in these types of conversations when we're talking about structural or macro things. Is we want to too quickly insert ourselves into those conversations and saying. Well, that's not my story, and because that's not my story, then this is not relevant, or that's not a valid thing, or that's not your story. So just an example, you say, we've had a black president. It's all good. (laughs) You know, it's like, yeah, one, 
what are the odds of another one coming? <laughs> I ain't betting on that. But but being able to say and look at those situations and saying because there's been an exception or one case, then that that removes the idea that there's still some things that are going on. I think the other piece of it is is when we're talking about these macro issues is understanding that it doesn't take individual bad actors to perpetuate things that have been um, woven into the drywall, if you will. So, so I'll give uh, one example if you just go with me for a little bit. Um, when we look at the uh, income inequality between um, blacks and whites in America, so uh, forgive me, I'm not a hundred percent on these numbers. So don't say, "Oh, he was a thousand dollars off." So he's not talking what he's talking about. Okay. Um, the median net worth for uh, the head of household in white families is about. 170 something thousand dollars thereabout the median net worth or wealth of a black head of household is about eleven thousand dollars okay so that's a pretty significant gap and that gap has actually widened since integration okay so when you look at that you're like huh okay if, if you were just thinking, if, if we all had the same opportunity, we all had the same uh, education or all those things, that that number probably should be fairly equal or even more distributed um, across uh, those two racial groups. But when you look at things like um, educational attainment, mm-hmm. so the educational attainment of black heads of households that have college degrees is less than the wealth of a white head of household who did not graduate from high school. I'll say that again. The median net worth of a head of household who is black, who has graduated from college with a college Mm -hmm. degree, is less than that of a white head of household who didn't graduate from high school. Okay. So that means that even if I have tried to educate myself, grow again, not talking individually, because you might come and try to Google my house and be like, nah, you got it. (laughs) We're talking about (laughs) macro issues here, all right? (laughs) That that's not it's not a that's not a question or a problem of education mm-hmm. of like hey there are folks who are not out here trying to get it it's like these are some stuff that's like i said it's like asbestos it's just like in the drywall so how does something like this get started well let's just go back and look at a i'll, I'll, I'll kind of take a couple points of history and talk about something that i see currently um uh right when the civil war was about to end uh Uh, General Sherman created an order that said for some of these areas in the South that had been liberated land, uh, we will have that land and we will turn it over to these newly freed black folks who had been enslaved and we will give them 40 acres and a mule. And they will be able to settle this land from like South Carolina down to Florida. And that was uh, kind of one of those reparations type plans in terms of, okay, we have all this land, we have these slaves, how can they, we can put them to work, start to give them um, some some dignity and, and ability to participate in American uh, economic life. All right. And so that was something that was in the works, had, the order had been um, put into place. And then Lincoln was assassinated not too long after. President Johnson comes up, and he squashes all of that. 
Okay. At the same time, in like 1962, something called the Homestead Act came up. Are y'all familiar with the Homestead Act? I know I'm, now we're going back to history and school and all the stuff. I had to look at the stuff up to myself. All right, so the Homestead Act said that if people were willing to move west, that they could get 160 acres in order to settle and develop the land. And so do y'all remember playing the game Oregon Trail? Okay. That was effectively what people were doing with the Homestead Act. The, the government said, if you're willing to go out there and you'll till the land and try to grow things and you know kind of develop communities and cities, you can have this space. If you stay there for five years, it's yours. The government gave that. Um, about mm, 10% or so of the white population took advantage of that. And uh, somebody did a study recently and said that about 45 million white Americans were still benefiting uh, financially from having their ancestors having gone out there. Because one of the greatest ways of growing wealth is having intergenerational transmission. So things like inheritances, things like uh, your parents giving you money for a down payment, um, your grandparents being able to pay for your college education, things of that nature. Those are levers that help you to be able to build wealth. So this particular thing was a government-funded um, thing. No, everybody pays taxes. <laughs> so this was a government-funded thing that allowed a group of people to be able to start and to be able to build wealth that still has effect even to this day. All right? Let's fast forward to uh, World War II. At the end of World War II, uh, the, they put in this legislation something called the GI Bill. You familiar with the GI Bill? Okay. That said that effectively if you were, if you were active military, then you were able to get um, education, either college or vocational school, vocational school for free. Or you could get low interest uh, loans for housing. Okay. World War II ended in the 40s. What was going on in the 40s? You still had uh, mass segregation. And you had policies where banks would not lend to black people either at all or only to live in certain neighborhoods. So you had even, there were black soldiers who fought in World War II, came back, who had the GI Bill and had these, these government-issued um, uh, resources and opportunities, but they had nowhere to be able to take advantage of them. Something also that was going on in the 1950s was the birth of the suburbs. So you had all these GIs coming back from World War II, built these houses in the suburbs. These things grow up in value. They have kids. You pass that, that value down and whatnot. And so then there are kind of multiple effects as it goes down. Well, here's an opportunity that, that you had these black soldiers who were not able to participate because either they could not get a loan. So this was before the Fair Housing Act was signed that says you couldn't discriminate based on race and whatnot. So you had these black soldiers who came back who could not take advantage of that. And that was another missed wealth-building opportunity. And so when you start looking at the numbers and saying, hey, is, is you know this structural thing still a thing? It's like, absolutely it is. So let's, let's fast forward to now. So you say, okay, well, we're past slavery. We're past Jim Crow. This is where we are now. Um, one of my newest endeavors is I'm working in uh, uh, investments now. And there's a particular class of investments called venture capital. And what that is, it's a fairly risky uh, investment class where you have people who are willing to, in exchange for um, equity in people's company, 
write checks. So if you've seen the show Shark Tank, it's effectively what that is. And, and what the, the folks who are sharks, who are investors, all investors are not like them people on TV where they're trying to take advantage of people. Um, but you have people who are trying to deploy capital or write checks into companies very early on, hoping that they'll grow up to be huge companies like Uber, like Google, like Airbnb, where you can write a $100,000 check to own some of the company. And in the end, you can get back like maybe $10 million, you know, some like huge uh, types of returns. And it's, it's, it's a very risky asset class because 50% of the companies that start end up going to zero and closing. So it's known to be a risky asset class. But if you look at the percentages of founders who are black, or Latino, they get 1% of this type of venture funding, which is patently ridiculous to me because it's like, this is supposed to be somewhere where you're willing to take risk. Mm. But if you think about it, it's like, well, it's ridiculous, but I kind of see how it happens because you don't give money to people that you don't know. It's really about the network that you have. And so you're going to invest in companies that you either know the person or you're comfortable with the person because there's some things that you have in common. Maybe we went to the same college. Maybe we worked at the same company. Um, and those type of things. Maybe my friend, who's also an investor, has recommended them. And so if that network is very homogeneous, then you're going to spend and, and, and invest your money in this particular way. And nobody can tell you, this is, this is your free money. These aren't government dollars. This is your money. So nobody can tell you to say, hey, I need you to invest in a more uh, diverse way. Well, I don't want to. Okay. But if we're talking about wealth building, again, the way these companies get started is initially you typically will get, as you get an idea started off the ground, the first person you go is not to the investors like Shark Tank. It's you go to your aunt. Or your grandmother, somebody who can write you a $10,000 check, a $20,000 check and say, baby, I believe in you. You know, go build this. And if you blow it, they ain't mad at you at Thanksgiving, you know. <laughs> but you need those types of investments in order to help to build your company mm -hmm. to where you can get it to a size where Mark Cuban and them can write you checks to where you can try to get a big company mm -hmm. and generate wealth. Well, if you don't have friends and family who can write those size checks, how can you ever get to that particular size of company? Well, I just told you what the average net worth, uh, the, the median net worth of black households is. Mm -hmm. They ain't got that money sitting around. So even if I have the, the idea for the greatest invention in the world, it's just going to be stuck in my head because I can't get anybody in my friends and family or fools around to be able to write me a check in that. And so the opportunities to be able to even overcome just that, that wealth disparity are not there. Even if I'm willing to work, I have the idea, I have the ingenuity, and those things. And so when we're talking about structural racism, it's like, I don't necessarily, I won't say what everybody is, because I don't know their hearts, but I would say that the majority of folks, even in the venture capital space, are not saying, I refuse to write a check to a black person. Yeah. But if they never have the opportunity to, mm -hmm. and if they're not actively looking and seeking to do, it's not going to happen. And so this gap will continue to be there or widen as some folks in our society have the opportunities to be able to try to grow their wealth and others don't. So uh, there are absolutely things like that. And those, that's just one example. There are many other places where those things exist. And um, even if people are not actively and viciously trying to put forward policies to, to keep things mm -hmm. to be unequal, like just because you stop 
doing things like that doesn't mean that that helps things get back to normal. Mm-hmm. It just means it just stopped. Yeah. But if it just stopped and things were unequal and things just continue to grow, then that will still be there. And so then that's where you do find some inequity still in existence. Yeah, wow. And, th- and I, I missed this in your introduction, but that's what you're doing with the Rockies Seed Fund, right? Yep. That's awesome. Um, when did that group uh, begin? Uh, last last year's when we launched the fund. Okay. Wow. So y'all that's awesome. want to invest. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> we um, in Parker. <laughs> Many uh, many people on all sides of the spectrum, all sorts of skin colors, like to say, I, I don't see color. I, I'm colorblind. Um, is this helpful or harmful? Um, or neutral? Uh, I would say it's, it's, it's harmful, and it's kind of missing the point. Hmm. Um, again, I'm, I'm rooted in, well, what is God doing? Hmm. And if God... In forming we in my mother's womb, decided that I was going to have some extra melanin, <laughs> then I need you to see that. Mm-hmm. I need you to know that. And that's nothing I need to run away from. Mm-hmm. It's nothing that I need to be ashamed of. Um, and it, it should not dictate how we interact. Mm-hmm. So I, I think what people are trying to get to is to say, you know, I, I'm, I try to, I'm going to treat people the same everywhere and that's a great thing to do but you don't have to look past or erase what you see it's like this is how god made me Mm. and um that was an intentional decision by the, the the greatest artist ever so being colorblind is missing what god is doing um in fact i think there's something um important about when in Revelation it says every nation, every tribe, every tongue, it's like we were created in the image of God. And that the fact that God didn't make us all the same gender, mm. the fact that God didn't make us all the same height, the fact that God didn't give us the same amount of melanin in our skin, it was intentional. Mm. Because there is a way that I can represent God as an individual that I can't fully do without the rest of you being here. Amen. And so it's like if somebody comes in this room and say, oh, wait a minute, y'all are a family. That's telling the people, the person who walks in this room something about the God that we serve that couldn't be said if I was just in here by myself. Hmm. And so I think it is, it's not just a problem to be colorblind. I'm like, no, something, something to be you should be celebrating the fact that this is the way that the artist decided to draw his painting. Mm. Um, the issue is not that we're, we have different skin color. The issue is how we organize and relate to one another because we have different skin color. Um, so see me say, yeah, you're black. Duh. <laughs> but that's something to be, to be celebrated, not something to be not seen. Mm. And that's good. Being white is good too. Because <laughs> God made you that. Mm. The issue is not, again, the lack of melanin. <laughs> the questions about, and this is one of the challenges I think about these terms, blackness and whiteness, is that they come with other things yeah. that are not just what we're talking about, about what we see. Um, it's, the, it's what we do with what we see that's the problem, not what we see. Mm, that's yeah. helpful. That's helpful. When, when you... Uh, 
you know, even the title of this talk, Race, Ethnicity, and the Gospel. Um, race, ethnicity, are these interchangeable terms? Um, how do we think about even the difference between ethnicity and race? Well, um, I'll, I'll talk about America because this is it's kind of interesting. Um, there are lots of ethnicities that once you get in an American context, get blanketed by racial categories. Mm. So uh, I have a, a good friend of mine who was born in Liberia, and uh, there was a civil war in Liberia uh, in the 90s, and his, uh, both his parents died in the civil war. He ended up being a refugee in Ghana and then came over to the States in high school. Has a fantastic story. His name is Marcus Doe. Fantastic story about that experience and even forgiving um, the the child soldiers who killed his dad. Um, but Marcus like effectively didn't grow up here. But if you were to look at him and didn't know anything else about him, you would just say he's black. Well, he's Liberian. Hmm. He lived in Ghana. And now that he's now in his 40s, he's lived in the States longer than any other place. But his connection or his ethnicity would be Liberian. Um, but in in a context when we're just looking at him in the States, it's like, okay, we just label that as being black. Um, even the term white was not always representative of everybody who looks white. There were times when folks who were Irish were not viewed as being white, people who were Jewish. Um folks who are Italian, you know, every immigrant at some point was came in and was ostracized. But there's a level of just kind of the way we, we operate here where there's a covering to say, okay, well, at some point you get grafted in and you're white. And, you know, regardless of where you came from and how, even how you want to identify, if you look like this, then you're black. Um, we, even, we even kind of blanket that with uh, Latinos and Hispanics. Uh, it's a very different culture growing up in Colombia versus growing up in Spain versus growing up in Mexico. But, you know, we kind of have these terms that are blanket terms um, for race that doesn't really take into account folks' ethnicities and their cultures and their backgrounds and whatnot. Um, so, so yeah, it, it can be complicated. The, the, the challenge of all of that is is that we can't really opt out of that. So I can say... Yeah, I'm I'm a Martian. I'm not black. But, you know, <laughs> there's some, you know, depending on time of night I'm on the street, you know, people don't want to hear about me being a Martian. You know, it's, it's a black dude there, you know. And I just kind of, I, I understand that that's, that's the way in society we, we kind of organize ourselves. Yeah, super helpful. Um, American society specifically. Yeah. Um, last question here before we go into a little bathroom coffee break. Um, but Alan Jacobs says, when your friend has just fallen and broken her arm, it is time to comfort her and get her care, not to offer a lecture on the dangers of skateboarding. That should come later and perhaps shouldn't come from you at all. Um, we know the Bible says weep with those who weep, but when it comes to actual matters of racial injustice, this is not always the, the posture of those even in the church. Um, too quickly, it can become political, um, and, and, and we identify ourselves with a political party instead of 
allegiance to Christ. Um, my question to you is, how important is it for majority culture Christians to lament? Um, to lament with those in the minority culture who are lamenting. Yeah, um, I think it gets back to the thing that you said. It's about where's your allegiance? Um, if we are in Christ, then there are kind of two things that come to mind. The first is being in Christ means that we're one body. Um, it's funny, Brandon used the illustration today, so I was like, good, I'm going to use this too. Um, he was talking about like when his, when his kids were younger, um, in the middle of the night, he was always scared to walk um, around the house because inevitably you're going to step on a Lego or hit a truck or something like that. And so he always turns the lights on and makes everybody mad in the middle of the night because he's like, I'm not on to run into one of these things. <laughs> because reality is, is that if you, if you, and you have any kids or anything like that, and you hit one of those things unexpectedly, especially on your toe, your pinky toe, you will want to cuss. <laughs> want to. Not because y'all are good Christians. You won't. But the, that, that your members might start warring at that moment. Um, but in that instance, when that happens... The rest of your body is not like, oh, man, that's just the toes problem. <laughs> your whole situation shuts down until that throbbing pain goes away. And the body activates to do things in order to help soothe and deal with that injured part mm. of the body. That's good. When we're called the body, again, I'm talking about folks who are in Christ. I ain't talking about just American society. I'm talking about the church, people who are in Christ. If we are in Christ, then we are the body. And so if one part of the body is hurting, you are hurting. Hmm. Because it's not them hurting, it's us hurting. It's not, yeah, I can't distinguish myself from my pinky. It's me. So it's not separating yourself. Yeah. The other thing I think about is the idea of the, that Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. It's, it's like this is when you look at these situations and not say that's a them, but truly look at it and say, this is me. Mm. Then you can you can lament. Mm. You can you can yeah. be frustrated. You can be upset. You can want to change. You can do things to try to help effect a change when you see that this is me who's affected. Hmm. Um, the further you can get away from it, the easier it is for you to continue to have it go on or to disconnect yourself. But again, we're in Christ. Yeah. Paul says we are of the same body. Hmm. And that metaphor means that if I'm hurting, you're hurting. Hmm. And so it's not a stretch for you to come to the aid of your body when your body is hurting. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. And then there is something that, you know, proximity is also going to breed an empathy as well. Yeah. I, I remember being in your guys' MC and one of the ladies was sharing just how nervous she is that, that her son is about to start driving. Um, and, and, it, and it wasn't the same kind of nerves I might have when my kids are going to drive. Um, it, it wasn't, oh man, he might crash or it was, it was my son's a young black man and he's going to start driving. And I was like, man, um, yeah, if we can, if we can't hear that and hurt with them, um, what are we doing? Yep. You know? 
jump into some question and answer with Pastor Derek. First, first question. Um, the people want to know. What's the investment fund? Tell us more about the fund. Okay. <laughs> uh, it is a uh, a fund where we uh, are targeting investing in black and Latino-led startups. And so um, I don't know how much I really want to know about venture capital. So I'll... I'll I'll save the the deep dive for just afterwards. Just pull me to the side, but the, but the big idea is we're trying to accomplish a couple of things. One, um, in in some small way, we're trying to um, it's almost like trying to mop the ocean. But but for whatever these twenty to thirty companies that we will invest in, so we have to raise the, the fund, and then we will invest in like twenty to thirty companies, and um, also work with them and try to help them to be able to grow so that we can get our money out of them, but also to see them to be exposed to this space and be able to create some wealth for themselves and maybe new opportunities. Um, That's one thing. The second thing we're trying to do is have um, black and Latino folks on the what we call the capital allocating side because typically the people making decisions on which companies to fund are overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly male. Mm -hmm. And so that presents some challenges um, because there are some companies that come up through the ranks that have fantastic ideas, but because the folks who are writing the checks say, I have no idea what you're talking about, then I'm not going to fund it. So here's a quick example. Um, There was a guy who came up um, named Tristan Walker, and he was working out in the Bay Area around uh, in Silicon Valley, and he was working on this uh, app called Foursquare. Do y'all remember Foursquare before it went away? But anyway, um, and so he got hipped to this venture capital space and things of that nature. Uh, he also had a problem. Tristan is a black guy. He had a problem with um, razor bumps when he shaved. And so uh, black folks' hair is curlier. And so when it gets cut, it there's opportunities that are more frequently for ingrown hairs because it curls over as it comes out of the skin which creates some bumps. So a lot of black men cannot use razors to shave their head because it creates bumps. And the alternatives on the market uh, for that at this time uh, was the stuff called Magic Shave. And what Magic Shave is effectively Nair. Do y'all know what Nair is? So you have brothers putting Nair on their heads (laughs) so that they would not get these bumps. So not a great solution for that and um he came around uh, came across these these straight razors that he found that he actually used that would not cause razor bumps and so he started a subscription service for these razor uh these straight razors and created this company called bevel and then started building some products around it and was able to blow up and had a great exit but early on when he would go to these venture capitalists looking for investment there was a problem they had no idea existed it was like I ain't never heard of that. I ain't never heard of magic shave and why are you putting that stuff on your hair? <laughs> you know, so having people who understand culturally what's going on, I think helps to to lubricate the ability to have some of those investments go to uh, those folks. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's what we're trying to do. We also have part of our fund uh, will be to write 
smaller checks into companies so that they can start uh, some of those friends and family sized checks because again you have folks who have great ideas but don't have the network within their family and friendships to be able to even get those ideas on the ground so some of the money will invest in companies at that early stage to help them to grow to a place where we can write larger checks uh, to help them try to grow so that's effectively what we're doing. Uh, if you want to hear more about it, we can talk about that. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. Um, next question here. How do you recommend a church deal with the sacred cows of their culture to help become a place where other cultures can feel welcome? Yep. Um, and that's that's something we're definitely dealing with, like, now. Um, as we're coming in, um, uh, you, you, you made reference to the fact that the reason why there is a black church is because of racism. So there were some, uh, this is back in the, I think the first black church was, I think in the 1700s, but um, you had black folks who were going to a white church who wanted to receive communion and were denied. And so um, they ended up starting their own church and then some other churches started up like that. And it was also illegal to teach slaves to read and things of that nature. Um, and so the, the, this, this black church rose out of a, uh, as a, um, as a reflex to what they were experiencing when they tried to enter into these white church spaces. All right. So this, this goes on for hundreds of years. And so now post integration, now there is an ability on some level to go to churches that are not all black and those experiences are what they are but there is in some black churches a a reticence to say why do we need to give up the way that we do things um, when this was built as kind of a protection against the way we were treated and so here we come (laughs) with all our folks who are white and latino asian saying okay we're all together and one of the comments that uh, somebody made when we first when we were first exploring this, they were worried about, and the woman asked the question, she was like, is our church about to be gentrified? Mm-hmm. And I was like, ooh. Um, and I understood where she was coming from because every other predominantly black space that has existed, especially even in Denver, and we saw it in the neighborhood, I live in Northeast Denver, that was a predominantly black space when white folks move in it ceases to be a predominantly black space just from the numbers just for everybody's understanding black people only make up 13 percent of the population so just putting that out there i went I, I talked i did a talk at uh ccu a couple of years ago and i asked those students i was like how many what percentage of the u.s population is black they were like 35 percent 40 percent i was like oh my god where are these black folks at <laughs> But but it's because black people are, are more represented in media and in entertainment. So you get a sense that there are more of us here. But, you know, we're 13%. Um, but anyway, uh, I think the woman had a valid concern because every other space um, can be compromised or challenged. But again, we start, well, what are we? It's like take the adjective off and start off, we're the church. And because of the church... Everything that we do is subservient to who we are in Christ. And so we start there. The problem that we do, that we have as churches, is that we say that that is the thing. 
And then the next layer is, and this cultural norm that we have is the way we're going to do things here. Versus saying, everything is subservient to Christ. And all cultures, in ways that are not antithetical to the gospel, are not just welcome, but celebrated here. But we very rarely try to live that out. It's, this is the church, we are in Christ, and here, this is the type of music we listen to. Or this we sing. We're the church. We're in Christ. But this is our preaching style. And if you want to be here, you adapt to the way we do things here. And that's a decidedly American thing. Because we have churches on every corner. So you can say, this is the way we're going to do it here. And if you don't like it, you can head down the street. And you can find your own thing. Or you can start your own thing. Um, there, there's some places where you have option A or option B and you just got to deal with it. I was talking to, there was a, a, a person who came to our church who had, um, spent some time in China and she was like, you had two options for church, you know, A or B. And that's just what you had, but we don't have, we have many, many more options than that here. And so people are able to, uh, push those sacred cows and make those things say, hey, we're not going to change on that. I don't care what the Bible say. This is just how we do things. This is our culture. This is this is our get now. And if you can't get what I get now, then you need to find somewhere else to be. And we ought to say that explicitly in the worst cases. But a lot of us are too polite to say that explicitly. But if you hang around us long enough, you recognize, you're like, oh, okay, if I can't adapt to your culture and I don't set mine aside, then this is not a place that's welcome for me. Yeah. yeah. Good. Um, next question kind of piggybacks off of that, actually. Um, but it says, I've heard the phrase said that Sunday morning is the most segregated time of the week. Is that understandable, tragic, or both? And should we seek to change that? Understandable. Tragic. Yes, it's understandable. Tragic, yes. Mm-hmm. You said, or both. So we answered that. And then what's the last one? Um, is this something we ought to seek? Sort of. Okay. So um, it's tragic that we've had to have a black church. So that is, that is tragic. Again, what is our identity? Who are we? This is not the way that God set this thing up to be. And we know that's not the way it's going to be when everything is as things should be. So when we're off kilter with that, that is truly problematic. Um, It's even more tragic here in the States because one of the biggest struggles and issues that we have in America are around issues of race. And for the church to be complicit in them Versus leading and showing this is what kingdom is like. And this is how people of different races, ethnicities operate, connect, fellowship, worship, live, serve together in a kingdom perspective. The fact that there's no difference here is like our salt has lost its saltiness. Or maybe our salt in America never had a saltiness. So that's that's a tragic thing. Um, so the question is like, should it be? Okay. Here's, here's the other thing. And, th- and that quote is, is sort of true. Um, but I would also say that it ain't just on Sundays. It's also on Saturdays as well. Mm-hmm. So if you think about it, we, 
the, the places where we're typically in integrated spaces are places that are mandated for it to be integrated. So schools where you can't discriminate, uh, workplaces where there's uh, laws against discrimination. But when we get on our own time, we tend to go off in our own separate ways. And so church then just becomes just another place when we're on our own where we tend to segregate. And so it's not just Sunday mornings. It's also Saturday afternoons and whatnot. Um, so the question is, um, you know, should we try? What's, I want to make sure I'm answering the right question. Is Should we try to change it? And I say, so the reason why I say sort of is that, again, I go back to it's like they're only the black population is only 13 percent. And then Colorado, maybe it's four. And most of us are in Denver. So if we try to go and ain't enough black folks to go around is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it's a numbers game. And, and especially out here, out west, you know, I'm just imagining if you ask me that question in like Nebraska or Idaho, it's just like, bro, I don't know what y'all going to do. <laughs> Have a black person say, you be the designated black person to go around to all of these churches. Um, but I think the, the, the bigger issue is not um, simply who are the faces in the crowd. It's what is the like, – who is truly welcome here? So if I'm visiting for the week and find myself in Wyoming for some godforsaken reason, <laughs> then can I walk in and say, hey, I'm with family? Or – Oh, I've walked in and, mm, and I'm telling you, as an adult, I've had that experience. Uh, when I was in Atlanta, uh, when I first moved, this was 2000, and uh, my cousin was in town. It was like right over uh, New Year's. So we, uh, he came over and spent the night with me. And um, he was like, man, let's go, to, you know, let's go to church. I was like, cool. So we just started riding around in, our, in the area just trying to find a church to go to. It was like, we didn't know. And again, this is, we had internet, but it was dial up. So it wasn't, you know, 2000. So anyway, so, uh, so we just kind of riding around and we pulled up and was like, okay, here's a church. And we pulled into the parking lot and, um, it wasn't a huge building, but we opened the back door and it was small enough to where you open the door and like, you're instantly in their, their mm. sex sanctuary, whatever you want to call it. And we opened the door, <laughs> and everybody kind of looked back at us, <laughs> and it was an all-white church. And just kind of the sense, like, when we kind of took that first step, me and him looked at each other. We're like, nah, this ain't it. This ain't it. <laughs> and, you know, it was just like, we just left. And, again, nobody said anything crazy to us. But the vibe in there was like, mm, no, you might want to drive on a few more miles down and you're going to find somewhere. And again, nobody said anything to us. But it was, I don't know if you've seen those westerns when somebody walks into the bar and everybody puts a drink down and looks at them, you know, like, or the pace picante, New York City. You know, it was like that type of feeling like, what did we just step into? And so um, you won't. You don't have to necessarily have black folks or, or other minorities represented in your body to be a place that's, that's welcoming and the type of place where if they are there, then they don't have to set their culture to the side in the car before they come in. 
um, there are ways to do that. And again, because there are so few, I'm just talking about black folks, there's so few of us here. Mm. It can't be just simply, hey, let's just recruit some more black people to where we are, or let's all move to where black people are. Mm. Um, it's, it's possible to be a homogeneous congregation, but be a place still that affirms all cultures mm. and where all people are welcome and wow. feel like family. Man. But that, that, that requires some intentionality. Yeah. Because the easy thing to do is like, hey, we all rock in this particular way, so this is how we're going to do things. Mm. Well, why would we change up? No one here is not like that. Well, it's like, well, maybe on the off chance somebody is here. So maybe we sing a different type of song. Or, hey, let's try to bring some other people in to expose our congregation to different people. Uh, what are the missions types of things that we're pursuing to be able to do things to, to give us uh, a different or a, a greater appreciation for the representation of the body of Christ. It's like you have to be really intentional about it because when you get in a room, get in a room where everybody's the same, everybody's culturally yeah. similar, then it's easy. To, like let's just do what's comfortable for us, and that's cool for y'all. But anybody who's not y'all, it won't be a welcoming place no. that they want to be. That's good, man. And super encouraging to hear that in Parker. Um, <laughs> Next question. It's a good one. Um, how, how do you balance integration of race and culture while still celebrating what makes us unique? What does that look like for neighborhoods and churches? Say that again. Yeah. How, how do you balance integration of race and culture while still celebrating what makes us unique? What does that look like for our neighborhoods and churches? Yeah, um, I think I've said this already, but um, integration doesn't mean creating a new monolith. Uh, integration doesn't mean that, all right, we're going to come up with a new thing. So there are a couple ways you can play it. You can say, here's the predominant culture we're going to have. And everybody has to adapt to that or assimilate to that. Let me be more strong. You have to assimilate to that or this is not the place for you. Um, or to say, well, and this is kind of how I think Singapore did it. So I, I spent some time uh, one summer in Singapore. And I was fascinated by Singapore. Singapore has only been around since I was born in 76. And the national language in Singapore is English. The population of Singapore is made up of Malaysians, Chinese, and people from India. But the national language is English because they didn't want people beefing um, with these minority groups. So they'll say, we won't make any of your native tongues the national language. We're going to make English the native tongue and to help them with commerce and other things like that because Singapore doesn't have anything to export. So um, it was effectively saying, we're going to create a new norm and everyone will have to adapt to that. That's problematic in the church because now you're still saying, all right, your culture, even if it's not antithetical to the gospel, you have to put it to the side. So I don't think the answer is saying let's pick which of the majority cultures, which culture we like and make everybody assimilate to that. Let's create a third culture and make everybody assimilate to that versus saying <laughs> every nation, every tribe, every tongue sometimes we just hear these things we're not thinking about the implication of that if you have every tongue saying holy 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 they're not all saying that in english so it's not like we get to heaven and everybody's like oh you're going to put your language down for this new heaven language no nah, you speak spanish you're going to speak spanish speak english you're going to speak english 
every nation, every tribe, every tongue. So you don't have to put your culture down in order to be a part of this tapestry of this body of Christ that we're a part of. So I would say that you shouldn't have to put your culture down. But you also can't elevate your culture to be the predominant one. You say that the thing that predominates here is Christ and his reign. Alright, so how can my culture be celebrated? Not as the only one in the room, but as one of the cultures in the room. How can my uniquenesses be celebrated as at me being an individual in the room, but not having everybody have to adapt and adopt to what I have going on? But again, that requires intentional acts and intentional thoughts. Because if you get a room where everybody looks the same, then no, we're not thinking about, well, who isn't in the room? You're not thinking about the other. And so, uh, so that, that, that is a challenge. Um, something else, somebody said neighborhoods as a part of this question. So I'll, I'll even address this. Um, this is this question that I've gotten from some of our white brothers and sisters who've moved into the area. So I live in northeast Denver. Uh, was was which was an area that was redlined, so it's the traditional black neighborhood in Denver. But now it's not so much, um, just with all of the uh, the population increase that's happened over the past decade. Um, but I have some uh, white brothers and sisters saying, um, "Am I a part of the problem for moving into the neighborhood?" Mm-hmm. And um, I'm always trying to careful not to try to be the black spoke, spokesperson. Because I'm like, I'm just a black person. But I tell them, I said, the fact that you're asking that question, mm-hmm. I think helps. Because it shows that you're moving here with some intentionality. That's good. So when you come into this neighborhood that once was a place where black people only could be, um, don't just come and immediately say, how can we throw up a dog park? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, think about. Talk to somebody. Talk to your neighbors. Talk about what did go on in this area. Talk about what was celebrated here. Get a feel for things. Um, and don't be just so quick to say, hey, what's the next coffee shop we can throw up here? Um, the coffee shop's coming because that economic thing, that train just moves. So I get that. But pausing for a moment and not just saying, what makes me comfortable here? Yeah. But having a feel for what was here before me, what's the story of this place, what's the story of the people who have lived here, what are they lamenting that they're losing as things are changing over. Again, you as an individual, you can't change things. You're like, okay, I'm not going to move here. Guess what? Somebody else white will. So I'd much rather have somebody who's intentional about how they're moving and acting as they're coming into this area. So I think having that type of mentality helps um, uh, when you're talking about churches and neighborhoods. That's so, so, so wise. Um, This next question has to do with our our kids. Um, How would you encourage families to teach their kids about race in age-appropriate ways? Okay, is this one of the questions that's going to get me in trouble? No. Uh, I know this is a, it's a hot-button topic politically. Um, here's the thing about America. You don't have to teach your kids about race. We live in a society that that's something that's a part of the culture. Um, there, was a, there was a study done um, with kids looking at dolls. And um, the the study was looking at a doll and identifying the doll as being, like, pretty or ugly. 
and these kids were looking at these dolls and um, sadly to say the majority of the kids who were looking at these dolls they would show them a black a white doll and we asked them how they would characterize it they would characterize the black doll as being ugly and this wasn't just white kids who would say that this was a study with black and white kids and no one had to teach them that it's when you live in a society where this stuff hangs over people learn kids learn without you being didactic about this is what it is this is what it isn't so it's not a matter of should you teach your kids it's like even if you don't want to they're gonna learn it because just from living in a society it's um I don't know. It's just even thinking of other than trying to think of something that's not race. Um, I would use the Broncos, but it's Denver, so okay. <laughs> if, if you grow up in, let's say you grow up in the South, you grow up in Alabama, you gonna pick a team, Alabama, Auburn. Nobody has to say you better pick a squad. You just live in the area where you see people either represent one school or the other. You see people flying flags in their car, representing one school or the other. You hear these arguments about one school or the other. You don't have to tell the kid, uh, Johnny, when you turn eight, you're going to have to pick. And this is the one that daddy wants you to pick. No. (laughs) Growing up in a culture where those things are like predominant cultural forces, they're getting an education. So the question really should be, um, how do we... Um, as parents or as influencers or as guardians, what ways do we teach them about these things that they're already learning? Um, <laughs> I was, uh, and I'm going somewhere with this. Um, I was talking to uh, a young man a couple weeks ago. Uh, his fiance had called me about doing some premarital counseling for them. And uh, they were not in town. I had married um, the the woman's brother and um the brother and his wife had gone through um uh, premarital counseling with me and they were just you know they were praising it and so uh when the sister said she was about to get married he was like yeah you might want to call Derek because he you know will really enjoy the experience i found it very valuable and so uh i talked to her and she was like yeah i really would like to do this i think this would be a great thing and i'm like okay cool i was like but my sense is there's something going on with your fiance i was like where is he on that she was like well i think he's with it um but um yeah i was like well do i need to talk to him she was like yeah can you talk to him i was like cool yeah i'll talk to him give him my number and let's talk and so uh me and the brother finally caught up and we talked and um you know had a little good little small talk but when we got to the brass tacks of it his thing was you know i don't want to go talking about stuff related to like counseling because i feel like that's just going to bring up problems and we our relationship is good and so i don't want to I don't really want to talk about the stuff that's going to bring up problems, you know, because, like, we really don't have problems. So we, like, so we're good. So, yeah, that's why, you know, I mean, it's cool what you talk, what you're talking about doing. But, yeah, I just feel like that'll just have us trying to talk about problems and create problems in our relationship where we don't have them. So I don't want to talk about them. And so I was like, hey, man, cool. Hey, if you want it, it's here for you. It's going to cost you. But, you know, because he don't go to my church. So anyway, so I was like, but it's there for you if you want it. And I ain't heard from him since. His idea was that talking about 
the problem, talking about, but just going through premarital counseling was going to create problems. And I'm like, bro, y'all already got problems. <laughs> Us talking about it, we can talk about it or not, but the problems are still there. Mm. Similar to that related to race. It's like, you can say, we don't talk about it. We're not going to talk about it. I'm not going to talk about it with my kids. It's still there. You don't have to talk about it. They're being influenced in it if you say something or you don't. And so I don't think it's helpful to not talk to them about these things um, because they're being educated. If your kids have any access to TikTok, they're learning a whole lot of stuff that's crazy. The, the problem is, is that they're digital native, so it's like you can try your best to keep these things out their hand, but they're going to pick some of these things up. And everybody on TikTok is not rooted in the gospel. But everybody on TikTok has a, an opinion and a platform, and so there's some stuff that they can learn. Some of the stuff could be some good stuff, but some of the stuff could be some crap. Um, so you can abdicate your responsibility to teach it and have them learn other places. Um, or you can be intentional about what you're teaching um, and presenting. Um, everything out there that is about race, and this is, and then we're going to really get into it. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and go here. Um, one of the, the, the challenges now is that as polarizing as things are, um, it's hard to have dialogue. You have a lot of folks who have platforms, and it almost seems like being the go-hard is what gets you the following. And the go-hard is not necessarily looking for common ground. The go-hard is not necessarily looking for redemptive solutions. The go-hard might be looking for punishment or making someone genuflect before them or erasure or what have you and that's not really helpful for people who are well-meaning and well-intentioned but those are the ones who are going to get the platforms and those are the ones who are going to be boosted by the algorithms and things of that nature and so if we don't interject in that process then now our kids are going to be taught by the go-hards and that could create extremes on several different ends of the spectrum that are not very helpful and more importantly that are not rooted in the gospel and so i think as as gospel influenced parents it is our job to train up our children in the way that they should go and that's not just simply saying don't lie don't cheat don't steal but it's also, how do I navigate and live in a world where this is such an issue? Um, how do I see folks who don't look like me? How do I interpret these things? What stuff is something that's good? And what stuff is, you know, wood, hay, and stubble? You know, what's wheat, what's chaff? But also, you got to know that, too, before you can educate them. I ain't going to go there. Awesome. Um, before I pray us out of here and we grab our kids because we got to grab them by six. Um, My fault. No, you're good, man. This has been such a blessing for us, Derek. Um, but maybe you can just leave us with an encouragement. MLK, he says, churches are often the tail light and not the headlight. Um, how can we change this? Yep. Um, 
Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And then he tells his disciples, therefore, go. And not just go, but also when you go, uh, I'll give you the Holy Spirit power and you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. I'm paraphrasing Matthew 28, Acts 1, chapter, uh, Acts 1, verse 8. We're not helpless here. We're not passive actors here. We have authority. We have the keys to the kingdom. We have a mission. We have a king. And particularly and peculiarly here in America, we have a lane that no one is running in. We don't have to fight people to talk about these things and say, how do we build a redemptive looking society? That's a wide open lane. You know, if we're trying to figure out homelessness or climate change and stuff, you know, we're trying to elbow people and we ain't got enough money and all this kind of stuff. But in this lane, ain't nobody running in this lane. It's wide open, but we are uniquely equipped for that because we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We are Christ ambassadors. And so this is what we're supposed to be about. So it's not even like, okay, let's just pick up this kind of sidecar mission. It's like, no, this is what we should be doing. Mm. And so the encouragement is we're not trying to reinvent a wheel. We're just aligning ourselves with what God has called us to do. Is it challenging? Absolutely. You know what else was challenging? Taking nails in his wrist. Mm. You know what else was challenging? Uh, Leaving that tomb empty. Mm. So if those things can be overcome and we're operating under that authority and with that power, then there's no reason for us to not just simply push into this area, but to push into this area and expect that God will do and give us the thing that he's ultimately going to accomplish. Because we know that in the end, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. So it's going to happen. It's already there. We're just trying to get up, get on the train that God is on. And helping to show more and more of what the kingdom looks like. Mm-hmm. He said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth yes. as it is in heaven. We're on earth now. The kingdom is up now. Yes. So let's just either get to work or be more intentional about how we go about work. Amen. Thank yeah. you, brother. Let's give it up to Pastor Derek. Thank you, brother. That was sweet. Let me pray us out of here real quick and then go grab you guys' kids. We can hang out in here until 6.30 or so, but we got to get those kids. Oh, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this evening. Uh, thank you for Pastor Derek and his heart and his um, um, life that is rooted in the gospel. God, I pray that, that we would... Um, that we would be your ambassadors, God. We thank you for reconciling us to yourself. I pray that we would would take um, this ministry of reconciliation seriously. Um, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our Redemption Institute podcast. You can learn more about Redemption Institute or any of our other ministries at redemptionparker.org.